When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nineteen thirty, prohibition has transformed Chicago into a city at war. Rival gangs compete for control of the city's billion-dollar empire of illegal alcohol, enforcing their will with the hand grenade and the Tommy gun. It is the time of the gang lords. It is the time of Al Capone, and now it's time for Nicholas Pepin and I to discuss the Untouchables from nineteen eighty-seven on this episode of the eighties flick flashback podcast. Al Capone, the king of the underworld. Somebody messes with me, I'm gonna mess with him. Elliot Ness, the leader of the Untouchables. I have sworn to put this man away. Four honest men took on an army of crime and swore to bring Capone to his knees. You wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. The Untouchables, rated up. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. And as I always say, we've got a good one tonight. This is by far one of my all-time favorite 80s movies. That's like a real movie. Like, you know won Academy Awards and stuff. Like, I felt a little sophisticated re-watching this movie today. I was like, oh, I'm watching a real movie today. <laughs> but we're talking about The Untouchables from 1987. And so glad to have, once again, for the guest co-host spot, Mr. Nicholas Pepin from Pop Culture Roulette. How you doing, Nicholas? I'm good. I'm I'm glad that, uh, you know, like, 
like you know i know that with like one crazy summer like you know it was like you know not a good movie but it was a fun movie <laughs> yeah i mean this is they're this all is good actually, movies they're just this different is yeah. actually a good movie right like, right you know, this I, is, well, i've got some thoughts but you know it, it, oh it, yeah you know, yeah it's not a perfect movie there's there's a few things that we'll i'm sure we'll talk about but it's it's beautifully shot masterfully directed great writing great acting i mean come on sean connery winning his first oscar oh well, well deserved his, his only oscar but, well true yeah his only yeah. Oscar. but uh what but yeah. I, I wrote something in here i'm trying to find it okay um oh right the cinematography like yes. i said it really stood out mm-hmm. like it's highly stylized oh it yeah. almost felt like the scenery and the sets we're almost like just like another character in the movie. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. You could really see where Brian De Palma, like, I mean, obviously, I mean, look at his history, and I'm sure we'll get there in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, you can definitely see where he really set the bar high for himself at this point. Mm-hmm. He was like, going I mean, for it, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, they definitely spent some money. Oh, yeah. I was <laughs> had that same thought, like, maybe not even 10 minutes in. I was like, they they put some money into this one for sure. For sure, but all right. Well, let's uh, let's kind of jump right in. So, when did you see Untouchables for the very first time? I, you know, again, knowing you're going to ask that question, I, <laughs> I really had to think about it. Um, I was nine when it came out, so okay. I know I know I did not get taken to see this one in the theaters. Yeah, probably a good thing. But I'm guessing we had a family friend that you know, like everybody had a family friend back in the late '80s, early '90s who recorded. You know, had like three or four movies on every VHS tape and just had, oh, yeah. a, had a closet full of them. Right. So if if I did, if dad and I didn't rent it from Blockbuster, I definitely borrowed it from him. So I definitely would have seen it mm-hmm. prob- probably late middle school, definitely watched it in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became one of those movies that like, if I came across it on cable, you I probably I probably stopped and watched you know, oh, yeah. whatever was left or, or tried to anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I had the same thought. I was like, I didn't see this in the theater. I know I didn't, but I don't remember if I, I, I had to have rented it, but this was one of the first VHS tapes that I remember buying after we bought a VCR. I remember having Good Morning Vietnam, Lethal Weapon, and The Untouchables were like the first like movies that I remember owning. And then of course, Batman, when it came out, I remember that being like the first oh, yeah. movie that I got as like a gift, you know, cause it came out around the time of my birthday around Christmas. So I remember like, I kept, I remember keeping Batman in the plastic. Remember the plastic they put around. Oh, and oh yeah. I just cut out the plastic from the bottom and I wanted to keep the, the cover as pristine as possible where we lived. I remember uh, where we bought our VCR they would have like the VHS tapes and we probably paid like 30 bucks a piece, which was cheap back then because I think at that time they were like 50, 49 or oh. 50 bucks for oh, a yeah. release. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, some of them would be like a hundred. I mean, it oh, was for ridiculous. sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when some, they, when it, it was first ridiculous. started. Yeah. So you never, you never got to buy them brand new. Like when I got Batman also for Christmas, well, I got it for Christmas, not my birthday, mm-hmm. like getting it like that soon after it came out on, on video was kind of like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that, you know. Because normally you had to wait like like it came out on video and you could rent it and then you had to wait another 6 months before the price dropped down to like a reasonable right like right. you know 
purchasing at home price. Yeah. Or the video store was like clearing out, like they would buy 20 copies and now yeah. it's not as big. So they would mark down, you know, the previously viewed, which. Oh, I can't uh, tell you how many VHS tapes <laughs> I have that had previously viewed stickers on them. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. Still had the rental, rental store sticker still on it when you opened it. Be up, kind. So. Rewind. Yeah. Exactly. So this is one that I remember owning. And I remember watching a lot on the VCR and it was funny because watching it, watching it again today on a bigger screen, 4k in the letterboxd, I was like, man, I've seen this so many times on VHS with, you know, the, the square box that I didn't, I was like, man, this would have been so good to see on a big screen. There were certain scenes. I was like, man, to see this on like a full screen would have been really, I mean, a a movie screen would have been really fantastic, but I didn't oh, get yeah. to see it that way. Um, so how long had it been since you watched it before we were watching it for the podcast? It's gotta have been 10 years or more. Okay. Just, just because like you said, they don't really show it too much on cable. And then, mm-hmm. you know, with, with not having cable anymore, like it's not one that I like, I mean, I, I'm not against, I mean, I I love this movie, right. but um, it's not one that I necessarily, it's not like a go-to. Right. You yeah. Know, yeah. It's one that I have to either be in the mood for, or when you were like, because when you first brought it up, it's like, oh, I hadn't seen the movie forever. So I watched it like right away. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is so good. Why haven't I, why have I taken this long to rewatch it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I rewatched it. It's been within the last probably five or six years, maybe. It's been within 10. I can't remember like when it was, but I think it came on one of the, it was available on one of the cable channels, like on demand. And I remember it was like, oh, I haven't seen this in a long time. I'm going to watch it. I remember when I had my extensive VHS collection, this was definitely in it because I've had it for a long time. I don't remember if I had this on DVD. I'm trying to remember, I was like, was it? Oh, no, I did. Because I think I had bought like a collector's edition double disc Untouchables DVD that I had for a while. And then when I was an idiot and sold all my DVDs, when I thought Netflix was the way to go, every movie uh-huh. I want was going to be on Netflix. Yes, forever. Right. Yeah. How how disappointing that became. So the the version I watched today, like I still want to get an actual physical copy, but there was some deal on one of the the digital companies where I could get the 4K high quality for like I could bundle, I could buy like three for like twelve or fifteen bucks or whatever. So oh, I was like, yeah. oh well, it's like it's hard to pass up that kind of deal. When when I knew I was going to be doing an episode pretty soon, I was like, well, I'll just go ahead and get this now that I can watch, and then I'll get the physical copy later. So H- uh, was- HBO Max was kind enough to. Oh yeah, leave it on there for yeah. me. So yeah, I saw it was on there too. I would have watched it either way. But all right, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about story origin and pre-production. This is based very loosely on it's it's based on actual people, but most of what happens in the film did not really happen or didn't happen no. the way it is in the film, which is like yeah, most biopics are. Right. Yeah. So Ned Tannen uh, spent years trying to obtain the rights of Elliot Ness's life story while working as an executive at Universal Pictures in the 70s and the 80s. After becoming head of motion picture productions at Paramount Pictures, which owned the film and TV rights to Ness's memoir, The Untouchables, Tannen immediately hired Art Art Linson to begin producing a film adaptation. Linson was not interested in adapting the ABC television series based on the book and sought a more creative, serious, authentic depiction of Ness's career in Chicago. Linson hired playwright David Mamet to compose an original script for the film. Most of Mamet's screenplay was used, but director Brian De Palma slightly rewrote some scenes during production in order to incorporate new locations. The scene that was in the train station at the end, 
was originally going to take place in a hospital, not the train station, but he changed that part. So uh, Linson and De Palma wanted to have more, have a more tender portrayal of Ness than Robert Stack's tough portrayal from the 1950s TV series, seeking to portray him as a quote unquote vulnerable family man, which I think they, they were successful in doing that. For right. Sure. And I'm sure we'll get to it with your facts versus fiction section, mm-hmm. but apparently his tender family side is mostly, yeah. is mostly <laughs> fiction. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I never watched the old TV show. Did you ever see any of the old TV show? I am aware that it exists, but yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> that like, I mean, it's one of those that, you know, back in the eighties when, you know, you had the UHF channels that subsisted yeah. solely on, you know, reruns of old shows. I'm mm-hmm. sure that seems like the kind of show that my dad would have been into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it existed like on reruns, I'm sure he would have rewatched it or, or had us rewatching it, but there's nothing like when I hear Robert Stack, I think unsolved mysteries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I can't say I've watched the original show. Like I, yeah, I'm sure I've seen a clip or I know I've seen pictures, but I don't think I've ever watched a full, I think my dad, <laughs> funny you mentioned that my dad, he watches on his cable package. There's some, there's some channel that just plays like old shows like old westerns and old movies and i think he was watching an episode of the old untouchable show like a couple of months ago and so i watched probably 20 minutes of it and it was uh it was very interesting to watch i mean you know we we're already nostalgic with our 80s stuff which we know can be right it has its own style but you go back to the 50s and it was a completely different style which is kind of harder for contemporary audiences to sit through because it's not very fast paced. Right. And it would it would be interesting to rewatch some some of the stuff from the fifties because they were so close to the actual time of Elliot oh, Ness and Al yeah. Capone that, you know, I don't I wonder if they would have been a little bit more truthful just because like they the people on set would have been like, that's not what I did. Right. Instead of instead of like some historian going, Well, I think this is yeah. Yeah. Um I'm going to go out on a limb here and say they probably weren't going for authenticity in the fifties either. They're probably just going for what's, what, are, what is going to make well, people want to watch this every week? Also, and I know the censor board in the fifties was probably also a little bit more strict than right, e- right. even the censor board in the eighties would have been. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very much sanitized version of Capone and Ness, I'm sure in the TV show. Right. And now these messages. What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture-themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Hey, 80s Flick lovers, just want to take a few minutes and say thanks again for listening to the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We don't have any shout-outs to new subscribers this time, but if you'd like to support the podcast on a monthly basis through buymeacoffee.com, 
We do offer three tiers of support. We have Cult Classic for $5 a month, Be Kind, Please Rewind for $10 a month, and Box Office Blockbuster for $15 a month. You can even receive an 80s flick flashback t-shirt if you become a Box Office Blockbuster member. So don't miss out. You can also leave a one-time donation for $5 or more if you choose. Just go to our website, 80sflickflashback.com, or the link in the show notes for more details and how to start your subscription membership. We'll always offer free episodes. We'll never put any of our past seasons or episodes behind a paywall, but it does cost money to keep the podcast running. Since the creation of the podcast, I've personally paid monthly for the website, the Zoom account, various movie rentals and streaming subscriptions, marketing tools, and any other miscellaneous expenses that pop up from time to time. If you love the show, then please consider being one of our subscription members through buymeacoffee.com. Every little bit helps, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey, you can also support the show by buying an official logo t-shirt, sweatshirt, or sticker from our brand new online store. There are multiple styles and colors to choose from, so go check out the selection also on our website as well as the link in the show notes. If you want to do something special for my birthday coming up in November or just for the holidays, you can find my Amazon wish list at the link in the show notes. I've compiled a list of Blu-rays and DVDs that I want to add to my collection, some are 80s, some are not, as I move away from digital content and back to physical copies. Hey, if you love 80s pop music and movie soundtracks as much as I do, you can also find the 80s flick flashback movie songs mix playlist on Apple Music. It's full of hit songs like Footloose, Ghostbusters, and Purple Rain, as well as some deeper cuts from 80s flicks like Catch Me Now I'm Falling from Hiding Out, Rhythm of the Night from The Last Dragon, and Babysitting Blues from Adventures in Babysitting. This would have been my ultimate movie soundtrack mixtape growing up if I could have found a cassette tape to hold seven hours worth of songs. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate every one of you, and I'm amazed each week to watch the number of new listeners grow. It's because of you and your support that the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast is still going strong. Let's keep the fun going. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, well, let's talk about Brian De Palma. This is the first film we've covered of his on the 80s Flick 80s flick flashback. Brian De Palma is one of the well-known directors who spearheaded the new movement in Hollywood during the 1970s. He is known for his many films that go from violent pictures to Hitchcock-like thrillers. After making small-budget thrillers such as Sisters in 72 and Obsession in 76, De Palma was offered the chance to direct a film based on Stephen King's classic novel, Carrie. Carrie, which came out in 1976, was a massive success and was praised by most critics, and De Palma's reputation was now permanently secured. He followed up this success with the horror film The Fury in 78, uh, as well as comedic films Home Movies in 79, the crime thriller Dressed to Kill in 1980 with Michael Caine and Angie Dickinson, and another crime thriller entitled Blowout in 1981 with John Travolta, which I remember seeing that one as a kid on TV, and I keep saying I'm going to rewatch it, but I haven't been able to catch it when it's available on streaming. They don't, whenever it's available, it's not available for very long, but I, I remember watching that as a kid and liking it. His next major success was the controversial and ultra violent film Scarface in 83. While being a critical failure, the film was a major success commercially. So he followed up Scarface with Untouchables in 87. He also made the Vietnam film Casualties of War in 89 with Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn. 
And, you know, he made some other movies in the 90s. He had some hits and misses. That's so I'm kind of going to skip over some of those. But the last, I guess, blockbuster movie he made was Mission Impossible 1996. That started the new franchise with Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, you, you can say he did. He did. He got that one right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I thinking about like I, when I was watching The Untouchables and, and I've, I've seen Mission Impossible a million times as well even though it's the same director and there are a few things that you can kind of tie him to, they, they don't feel like they're from the same director. You know no. what I'm saying? So he, and, he does well with different genres for sure. And honestly, like, I guess maybe just time difference wise, but like, I forget that De Palma directed Scarface and Untouchables mm-hmm. because like, I hate Scarface. Yeah. I'm not like, a big I, fan of that one either. I know. I know that's sacrilegious, you know, <laughs> But I hate Scarface, but I love Untouchables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're also two dealing with yeah, two different two types different of, eras. Yeah, two different eras, two different types of characters, and two different perspectives of a story as well, I think. So Scarface, I remember watching Scarface for the first time probably five or six years ago. And I was like, why do people like this movie so much? And And I know if you're a big Scarface fan, please don't. You know, stop the podcast now. We'll get back to talking about Untouched. We're not going to slap. We're not going to bash your film for very long. But I would, you know, like I guess we're both saying, if I had to, if I had to pick one of the two, I'm going to pick Untouchables before I pick Scarface. Absolutely, hundred percent. But I like the Palma as a director. Like I said, Mission Impossible was very well done. Very di- like it's funny to go back and watch that first Mission Impossible movie, n- knowing what the Mission Impossible franchise is now. It's almost night and day, uh, right? But still, very well made. Very yeah, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right, well, let's jump into casting. Well, we won't hit everybody. We'll hit the main cast on this one. People are going to think that I'm like a huge Kevin Costner fan, which I can't say that I'm not. But I've, I think I've done more Kevin Costner films on the podcast than anybody else because we've done Bull Durham, we've done Field of Dreams, I've done all these baseball movies. It seems like I, I feel like I've done another one, but. You've covered Covered Costner a couple of times, but but this was his first, like this was really his breakout role. This is the film that gave him Bull Durham and Feel the Dreams. True. Before we get to talking about Kevin Costner, talk about who else was in, in consideration. So fashion icon Giorgio Armani, which I just realized today, was the costume designer for this film, which I was like, wow, I didn't think about Armani being the costume designer. But he actually told Brian De Palma that he should cast Don Johnson as Elliot Ness because Johnson wore Armani on every episode of Miami Vice, and Armani called Johnson his quote-unquote male muse. You know what? Given where Don Johnson was in the 80s with Miami Vice, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's too different of a... Like, it doesn't go that differently if you cast Don Johnson over over Kevin Costner. Particularly at that point, because Kevin Costner wasn't Kevin Costner. Right, right, you know, right. So, you know, I don't I don't know if you get, like, it's not like, you know, I was either going to hire Adam Sandler or <laughs> Robert De Niro. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I, that's a know, big difference. Yeah. I could see Don Johnson doing this. Like, I I mean, I like that Kevin Costner did it. I think he yeah. did an amazing job. But I could see him doing it, but I don't think he would have been, I don't think he would have done as well. But I think what helped this, and I think this was one thing that, uh, that De Palma was concerned about hiring Costner because Costner was sort of an unknown at that point. Like he hadn't really had a big success. So he was going to be the you know the main character and carry the movie. Of course, you had De Niro, which was going to bring audiences for that. But so he was a little nervous. But I think putting Don Johnson in that 
because he was so popular on Miami Vice, people would see him playing a different character. It was either going to help or hurt. Right. Uh, and yeah. That, and that's, that's almost a bigger gamble because people are expecting a certain persona from Don Johnson, whereas Kevin Costner is a guy they don't really know. So they can kind of buy into the character a little bit easier. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they made the choice that they made. Oh, yeah. Other ones in consideration, Mickey Rourke, Jeff Bridges, William Hurt, Harrison Ford, and Michael Douglas uh, supposedly turned down the role. I remember that the studio was very eager to get Harrison Ford because something had just come out before Witness. that. Witness, that's what it was, yeah. And it was a Paramount movie, so they it was because it was a commercial success. They were pushing for him to be in it. As much as I love Harrison Ford, I don't know if that role is right. It would have been a very different Elliot S. Yeah, had, oh, for sure. I think, and I don't know if it works. Like I it's think, just a, a different movie, you know? Yeah. I think the other part, like I don't any none of those other actors to me would have worked. I mean, it's hard because some of these are, you know, actors are still working today. So I got to think back to how they were in the eighties, right. like Jeff Bridges and Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford. Um, uh, you said Mickey Rourke, and yeah, my he, first thought is Mickey Rourke today, and I'm like, oh no, no. but <laughs> Mickey Rourke in the eighties was a very different Mickey. Very Rourke. different, very different. But I'm also thinking about the chemistry between. You need that chemistry between Ness and Malone, Sean oh, Connery's no. character. So, you know, you need that chemistry. I don't know if any of these other guys would have had the same chemistry with Connery that Costner did. I agree. And I think that that another thing that ultimately helped this movie was that chemistry that they had. A 1985 issue of Variety announced the casting of Jack Nicholson as Elliot Ness, but he was ultimately replaced by Kevin Costner. In preparing for his role as Elliot Ness, Kevin Costner met with former FBI agent and untouchable Al Wallpaper Wolf at his home for historical context and learn about Ness's mannerisms. So he did have someone to kind of help him through. But I heard like, I think I didn't put this in the notes, but I think the Jack Nicholson thing was not serious. Like I think they offered it to Jack Nicholson, but he didn't want to do it. But putting his name on the project kind of helped get it more buzz and got more attention. So I've seen that in a lot of eighties movies too, where they'll say they're seeking a big name to get more kind of boost funding. Like, Ooh, Nicholson's going to be in it. Oh, we want to be a part of this movie. And then even then when he bows out, they already committed. So about the business of Hollywood. Yep. So a little bit about Costner. Of course, we've covered him in the previous episodes I mentioned, but I'll we'll, uh, hit some of his filmography. Uh, in the eighties, he started with Fandango, American Flyers and Silverado uh, before he made <clears throat> had his breakthrough roles in The Untouchables and No Way Out, which he actually filmed before this movie, but it came out shortly after this movie, which is another great Costner movie. He then starred in Bull Durham in 88, Field of Dreams in 89, Dances with Wolves in 90, JFK in 91, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, also in 91, and of course, The Bodyguard in 92. He's made multiple movies over the last couple of decades, and of course, you can see him now on the Paramount Plus TV show Yellowstone, which uh, is really good. Yeah, it is. So Costner, definitely, I think, the right choice for Elliot Ness. I would agree. So then we got Sean Connery as Jim Malone. He was the first actor to portray fictional British secret agent James Bond on film, starring in seven Bond films between 1962 and 1983. 
originating the role in Dr. No, Connery played Bond in six entries and made his final appearance in Never Say Never Again. He began acting in small theater and television productions until his breakout role as Bond. Although he did not enjoy the off-screen attention the role gave him, the success of the Bond films brought Connery offers from notable directors such as Alfred Hitchcock, Sidney Lumet, and John Huston. Their films in which Connery appeared included The Hill in 65, Murder on the Orient Express in 74, The Man Who Would Be King in 75. He also appeared in Highlander in 86, The Name of the Rose in 86, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 89, one of my favorites, The Hunt for Red October in 1990, The Rock in 1996, and Finding Forrester in 2000. Connery officially retired from acting in 2006 after The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, although he briefly returned for voiceover roles in 2012. Unfortunately, Mr. Connery, Sir, I'm sorry, Sir Sean Connery passed away on the 31st of October, 2020, in Nassau, the Bahamas, where he resided. He was 90 years old. What is there to say about Sean Connery that hasn't already been said? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, he's Bond. I mean, I know he's done so much other stuff than that, mm-hmm. but you know, when when you think Sean Connery, I Bond almost guarantee thing, yeah. Bond is the first thing you think of. I mean, yeah. even even given all the rest of that career, and I'll say like for Bond, like he's like for me probably number two. Mm-hmm. But my favorite Connery movie is Last Crusade. Okay. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So great in that. So great in that. Yeah. I think this was probably the first movie that I saw him in because I didn't see, I I grew up with the the Moore, you know, Roger Moore Bond. Those are the Bond movies I saw. I never saw any of the Sean Connery Bond movies as a kid. They only showed the newer ones on cable when I was little. So I didn't really know him as a Bond character at that point. Highlander, I didn't see until I was much older. Name of the Rose, I don't think I saw until much later. So yeah, it was like Untouchables from that to The Last Crusade was probably, you know, my introduction of Sean Connery for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was reading James Bond books way earlier than uh, <laughs> I should have. Right. So I know I was probably watching James Bond movies way earlier than I should have. I mm-hmm. distinctly remember like just going to the blockbuster or the cbs or <laughs> far more or whatever with that you know back when grocery stores used to have you know video rental sections oh yeah oh yeah oh, this, i haven't seen this bond movie yet i haven't seen this bond movie yet <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i've seen this one but i want to watch it again right right so what's your favorite what was your favorite uh connery bond movie oh so hard to keep straight as to who did <laughs> what but probably thunderball okay but I'd have to look at the list to see who did yeah. what movie. Like Daniel Craig is easier to remember because he's so more re- such more recent. But yeah, like oh, yeah. it's hard it's hard for me to remember which ones Connery did, which one Moore did. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that yeah. I definitely rented, where like everything from Goldeneye till now, I've seen in the theaters. You know, right? Yeah, same. Like every once in a while, like I'll pull out a list of like all the Bond movies. Like, oh, I'm going to go back and watch these. And there's a couple of ones that Roger Moore is like, how did I miss? How have I not seen this one? I don't even remember this one coming out. So I didn't really become a Bond. I mean, I watched a couple of Bond movies, like I said, as a kid. I remember For Your Eyes Only is probably the first one that I saw. There was a few other ones that I remember seeing. I remember seeing the Timothy Dalton ones, The Living Daylights. But then when when Pierce Brosnan kind of rejuvenated it in the, what was that? late 90s mm, mid to late yeah. 90s yeah mid to late 90s yeah and then then i kind of became more of a bond fan at that point because of course i was older i could understand some of it better than 
yeah. admit and did as a kid. So well, if you if you ever get around to doing you know the Bond movies on the '80s Bond movies, which yeah. I know there's a few of them. Oh yeah, there's a few. You know, I thought about I, it. <laughs> I got I got you down for those. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to take them all. I want to let other people <laughs> have some fun, but I want to do yeah. at least one of them. Okay. So, all right. So, moving right along, we got Robert De Niro as Al Capone. Of course, Robert De Niro was De Palma's first choice to play Al Capone, but it was uncertain if he could appear in the film because of his appearance in the Broadway play Cuba and the and his teddy bear. He also wanted to gain about thirty pounds to play Capone, according to De Palma. De Niro was very concerned about the shape of his face for the part. De Palma met with Bob Hoskins who to discuss the role in case De Niro could not appear. When De Niro took the part, De Palma mailed Hoskins a check for his contracted fee of $200,000 with a thank you note, which prompted Hoskins to call up De Palma and ask him, is there any more films you don't want me to be in? <laughs> which I thought was great. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll take a $200,000 check to not right, be in a movie. Right, which which I, another account of that said that he sent it to him as like, thanks for being a stand-in. Like it was, you know, just in case, like the the, the fallback guy. Gene Hagman and Marlon Brando were also considered as options in case both De Niro and Hoskins proved unable to perform the role. Uh, Gene Hagman would have been interesting. Brando is so weird. I just don't know how that would have worked. And I think yeah. it, would, it would it would have brought too much. Godfather. Godfather. That would have been too much of a people would have expected it to be that same type of film. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm struggling to put Bob Hoskins in that role. Because I have an image of who Bob Hoskins is. In it's my only head Roger be- River, right? Yeah, Roger <laughs> Rabbit, basically, or Mario, but that's another podcast <laughs> altogether. Uh, but yeah, but he had done like some really serious movies, oh, like yeah. late seventies, early eighties. So I, I, I think he was a good choice. Well, um, even even before he passed away, he did some really serious yeah, stuff. But yeah. you know, I mean, so I mean, he probably would have knocked it out of the park. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a really good actor, but I mean, De Niro. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. fantastic. He was he was nominated too for an Oscar that year, wasn't he? I don't know for a fact if it was. I think I just I think I think so. Yeah, I he know that Connery. Yeah, no, I think Connery is the only one that won an Oscar for this movie. Right, but. right. I think the composer won, which the music in this is fantastic too. But we'll we'll get to that too. For De Niro's research for the role of Al Capone included reading about him and watching historical footage. He had one extra scene written for his character and contacted Capone's original tailors to to have identical suits and silk underwear made for him, (laughs) which the producers like, why do you want to do that? But because he was such a big method actor, they were like, we'll just we'll just do it. Don't know why that was important to him, but he because method actors are weird. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't get method acting, but whatever. (laughs) But he was paid up one point five million dollars for the role, and I think Costner got a million for the role, so they they made some money. But a little bit about De Niro's past: his first major role was in a movie called Greetings in nineteen sixty eight, and he gained early recognition with his role as the baseball player in the sports drama Bang the Drum Slowly in nineteen seventy three. His first collaboration with Scorsese was Mean Streets, also in seventy three, where he played small time crook Johnny Boy. He then moved to Vito Corleone and The Godfather Part Two in 74, which earned De Niro an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Then he went for Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver in 76, and then The Deer Hunter in 78. He earned two Academy Award nominations for Best Actor. 
De Niro won an Academy Award for Best Actor for portraying middleweight boxing champion Jake Lamota, Lam, Lamota, Lamata in Scorsese's biographical drama Raging Bull in 1980, his first Oscar in this category. He soon diversified to other roles, playing a stand-up comic in King of Comedy 82 and gained further recognition for his performances in the epic 1900 and 1976, Once Upon a Time in America in 84, Brazil in 85, The Mission in 86, Midnight Run in 88. He's had a long career. I won't go through his whole filmography, but... It gets really weird somewhere around 20... <laughs> yeah, the, 2005, yeah. 2006, I don't... Late 90s going... He he wanted to jump into comedy uh 97 with uh, Wag the Doll. Then he did Analyze This in 99, Meet the Parents in 2000. And then that's... he just... That's where he kind of went. He was yeah, just trying to make money at that point, I think. Yeah, but that's that's where his career kind of went off the rails. Around Meet the Parents. Yeah, I love Meet the Parents though. Uh, I, <laughs> I, it, that one is okay. It's the sequels that. Oh yeah, guilty pleasures for me and my wife. We we've enjoyed those movies. They make us laugh. So, all right. So, uh, well, you do you have a favorite De Niro performance of his career? Um... I you know it's hard to come up with one. I mean, I do. I you know Brazil is a really weird movie that I, I think I enjoyed, but I'm not sure I understood it. <laughs> uh, analyze this. I mean, so probably some of the the comedy stuff. I mean, De Niro is one of those hit or miss actors. Heat, mm-hmm. Heat is great. Heat's great. I mean, there's so many. It's Cape hard fear. It's hard to come up with like what I would think, because some of the movies that he's the best in, I just don't like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think Cape Fear was really good, even though that's not a movie that I want to watch. But he's been in some, he's been in a lot of good movies, though. Awakenings was good. Oh, yeah, there um, we go. That's a good one. Yeah. All right, moving along. So then we got Charles Martin Smith as Oscar Wallace. The character of the IRS agent Oscar Wallace was partially based on Frank J. Wilson, the IRS criminal investigator who spent years keeping tabs on Capone's financial dealings before laying charges. Unlike Wallace, Wilson was not killed during the investigation and was later involved in the Lindbergh kidnapping case, which we'll get into more like fact versus fiction stories as we get moving, move further into the, into the uh, podcast. But, uh, but Charles Martin Smith is known for his roles in American graffiti from 1973, the buddy Holly story in 78 star man in 84 deep cover in 92 speechless in 94 and deep impact in 98. He was also a director. He's known for the films Dolphin Tale and Dolphin Tale 2 from 2011 and 2014, as well as A Dog's Way Home from 2019. Didn't know he was a director, but he was a guy that I recognized his face, but I, unless I had pulled up the research, I would not have known any of the other movies he was in. No. Yeah, he's one of those that guys. Hey, I know that guy mm-hmm. somewhere. What do I know him from? Yeah. He is good in this, though. You know, we talk about this isn't a perfect movie. I think the whole trope of him being kind of the book smart, not, you know, not a real action kind of guy that then become like in that scene at the border where he's just shooting up everybody and then kind of gets a little, you know, uh, drunk on on his power, uh, gets a little yeah. cocky, which. Yeah, I, I wrote sad. I wrote something down about that. So, <laughs> oh, I, I just wrote when. Because it, it was one of my favorite scenes. I wrote when the accountant goes nuts and becomes, uh, well, I had to, because I knew what I was coming on. I wrote, uh, becomes G.I. Joe all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Like he just, you know, like his, like one of, like Andy Garcia gets shot in the shoulder and he's just all like, 
oh, I'm going to take right. you all out. Like, right, like, right. You know, like uh, what's his name in a uh, Predator? Like all the you know, Carl mm-hmm. Weathers or no, mm-hmm. no, yeah. uh, uh, um, Duke, uh, Bill yeah, Duke's Jesse, character. Oh yeah, Bill Duke. Just, just all of a sudden, like, oh, just start taking everybody out. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, wait a minute. This guy doesn't even know. Like, he doesn't know if he has ever like looked at a gun before. And all of a right. sudden, he's like, and he's a phenomenal shot. And you know, every he doesn't miss on anybody he shoots at. At that point, so yeah, that that was that was part of like that's some of the stuff that you're like. Probably the first time I saw watched the movie, I was like, yeah, but like right. repeated viewings are now that you know movies are what they are. You're like, oh, all right, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it bumped it down just a little bit for me. It's still a great movie, but that I, I was when we th- talked about it, that that scene kind of got me. Was like, eh, it's a little. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been that his character could have been nuanced a little better um, for that for those scenes. But then we've got Andy Garcia as George Stone. Uh, De Palma first noticed Andy Garcia in Eight Million Ways to Die in 1986, and first pictured him playing the villain Frank Nitti. But Garcia insisted on reading for Stone instead, which I think that was a better better fit for him. Yes. After his breakout role in The Untouchables, he continued to act in films such as Stand and Deliver in 88, Internal Affairs in 1990. He then went on to star in Godfather Part 3 in 1990 alongside Al Pacino and Diane Keaton. He continued to act in the films such as the romantic drama When a Man Loves a Woman in 94, the action thriller Desperate Measures in 98. He also starred, which is one of my favorites, uh, in Steven Soderbergh's Oceans 11 in 2001. It sequels Oceans 12 and Oceans 13. And he's uh, had kind of a career resurgence the last couple of years with Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, The Book Club, The Mule, and this year's Father of the Bride remake on HBO Max, which I refuse to watch because I like the original Father of the Bride too much to watch a remake. Let's just say that's why I refuse to watch it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I like Gandhi Garcia. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure it's probably a good movie, but I just, I, you know, you, you're not going to be able to replace Steve Martin in the Father of the Bride movie. Correct. Which, in its own right, was a remake of a Spencer Tracy movie from the 50s, but I digress. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, but Andy Garcia is great. Like, I kind of forget that he's in this movie until he pops up, and I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot this is like the first, one of his first movies that he was in, and he's really good. Right, yeah, I mean, it's it seemed kind of strange that, like, for a movie that probably would have been as promoted as, I, I mean, memory fails me on a, you know, 1987, mm-hmm. uh, like, TV ads and posters and stuff. Right. But I'm guessing with Connery and De Niro and just being what it was that they promoted this movie and two of the biggest main stars had really done nothing. <laughs> Kevin Costner had done, like you said, like, you know, but Silverado was his, Silverado. Was, was his most commercially successful at that point. And I mean, American Flyer, which I mean, I'm sure people have seen, but, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't and, then, and, and then Andy Garcia was in almost nothing before right. this. Right. So, I mean, two of your big, I mean, two of the four or five main characters in this movie had like, you're, I couldn't imagine them trying to bank a, a movie with unknowns like that. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. But they did, and it worked. I mean, yeah. and both I mean, of those guys have, yeah. have gone on to be really successful. So right. they were right. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't have like a major role. Like he's not, you know, he's very much a side character. I mean, he's important, and he has vital things to do in the movie, but you don't see any of his backstory. I mean, he's not like a, you know, 
he's not one of the main leads, but he's still a vital part of the team. And when, like I said, what what he's given to do, he does really well. And you can see why it kind of helped boost his career for sure. It definitely gave him more exposure and let him do, you know, more things for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. So a few more we'll talk about uh, Billy Drago as Frank Nitty. <laughs> Billy Drago is just a great, a great stage name, but right. uh, he's well known for his villainous parts, leading or supporting and his rugged yet scary looks and evil smile. He was born William Eugene Burroughs in Kansas. He became interested in acting and took his mother's maiden name Drago as a stage name. At first, he worked as a stuntman in Kansas, then attended the University of Kansas. After graduating, he worked as a radio host before joining an acting crew that led him to New York. He began his acting career at the end of the 1970s. After appearing in multiple TV series as a guest actor, he appeared in such low-budget films as Wind Walker in 1980, Vamp in 86, Hunter's Blood in 86, Freeway in 88, Dark Before Dawn in 88, China White 89. I don't know what half these movies are. I, True, yeah. True Blood in 89, Martial Law 2, Undercover in 91, Cyborg 2, Glass Shadow <laughs> in 93. He also appeared in Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, but sadly, he passed away from complications following a stroke in Los Angeles on June 14th, 2019. He was 73 years old when he passed away. So, yeah. Uh, but he's yeah. one of the he's one of the actors that I wrote down in case you didn't uh, bring him up. Oh yeah, uh, because he's you know like I mean you just mentioned a whole bunch of movies that I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> I've probably seen a couple of them. Yeah, I, I was gonna remember. say I probably I've probably seen it because like no. he, his face pops up like I've seen him other things. Yeah. But there, there was a couple scenes in this movie where, like, he had a, a particular smile or mm-hmm. like a smirk, a, a smirk. Where I was like, man, in a different world where he's more famous, he could have been the joke. Oh, of course, yeah. Like same, if they had done, thought. if they had done like Frank Miller's like uh, Dark Knight, where everybody's a little older. Mm-hmm. Like I think you know, I think he could have done a great job as the Joker. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, so last on the list that I'm going to cover is Patricia Clarkson as Catherine Ness, Elliot's wife. This was her feature film debut. She followed it with a supporting role in Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool in 88. After appearing in minor roles in the early and mid-90s, she garnered critical attention for a portrayal of a drug-addicted actress in the independent drama High Art in 1998. She also appeared in other supporting roles in films such as The Green Mile in 99, The Pledge in 2001, Far from Heaven in 2002 and Dogville in 2003. So, yeah, I remembered her from the Green Mile, but she's been in a bunch of. She's, I mean, she's been on TV. She's done a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um. So I definitely remember her. She just, she seems like she's older than Costner, which was kind of weird. Like, not. I'm not saying that men can't marry older women, but she just seems much older than him in the movie for some reason. She also. Um doesn't really look like she's changed all that much like no, she hasn't yeah she's she's like aged she, well she, yeah yeah i mean but you know like you said like i don't I, there's like i can't think of any one thing that i've seen her in but like you just mentioned a whole bunch of stuff i'm like oh i've seen a lot of those well, mm-hmm. oh yeah i guess she wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah once again not a major role but she was good well and i think her character was kind of the uh like the time frame reference yeah yeah, like kind of like the showing you like that everything didn't happen just over a weekend because like <laughs> right. when the movie started she was pregnant mm-hmm. and by the end of it she had uh, you know, the son, kid, the right. son who was a uh, you know 
So like you knew that there was like you know a couple of months or you know mm-hmm. like a year you know however long it, it wasn't just like you know Elliot Ness showed up and then a week later he had it, you know? <laughs> like a phone locked up yeah exactly all right anybody else in the cast you want to that I missed that you wanted to cover or no because I I had written Billy Drago down and then I had written cinematography down as a cast member but we already talked about <laughs> that so and now these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time, and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro, and we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you... Make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever. Like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers... And Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle... And Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up.
All right, let's talk about iconic or favorite scenes. I think there's multiple iconic scenes in this movie, but I'll let you go first. Are there is there right. one or two you want to talk about? Well, there's there's three particular iconic scenes that I can come up with. So I'm not I won't label them all because I'm pretty sure we'll we'll get to them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the the first one is the you know the the Connery and Costner standing in the sitting in the church. Yes, you you send. You you know he sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. Speech, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you know that that scene where the two of them are, you know, the these walls have years, and then they run to the oh, church. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Come at you with a gun. You come at, or they come at you with a baseball bat. You come at them with a gun. And then, you know, it just increasingly gets to the where you send one of them. Like that line is just so. It's why I think it's why Connery won the Oscar. I mean, it's just it was in indicative of his character throughout the whole movie, where he always had the great comeback or the mm-hmm. great one-liner or just was ready for whatever. Yeah. He was the wise veteran that had the yeah. wisdom. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that scene or that speech has been used or a version of that speech has mm-hmm. been used in so many movies since mm-hmm. then. All right. When we go and then we'll just go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how many of them okay. we take off each other's so list. That one, that one almost made my list. The little girl with the briefcase bomb is on my list because I remember how that freaked me out as a kid. Okay. <laughs> like yeah. that was very, I mean, very shocking. You know, of course now it's you know, as older it's like, oh, that's a trope. You know that's a bomb. But as a kid, I right. didn't didn't recognize that. What you got? What's your next one? Uh the baby carriage. I yes. Mean, yeah, the train station. I mean, I think that might be the most iconic scene from the movie because how many times have they parodied parodied yeah. that scene? Yeah. And and everything. Some version <laughs> of a baby carriage or you mm-hmm. know, yeah, but it's so well done. That yeah. whole sequence is so well done, which once again goes back to De Palma, his direction. And I think all of these iconic scenes I credit to the director. Well, there's one I credit more to the actors than the director, but anyway, or a good combination of both. So my other iconic scene is Capone with the baseball bat at the dinner yep. table. Yeah, that was that's the other one that's on my list. Yeah, which the bad thing about that one is I think when I had. By the time I watched the movie, I already knew about that scene because I want to say like when this movie came out, there was somewhat of a there was somewhat of backlash about how violent it was. And that was that was a scene that I think they talked about. And so even though I hadn't seen the whole scene, I knew that scene was coming. So when they when he starts the speech, I was like, Oh, I know what's gonna happen in the scene, who's it yeah. gonna be? kind of a thing. So I kinda hated that I knew that kind of going right. uh, But I mean even even knowing having seen the movie as many times as I had, like mm-hmm. the, just the sheer brutality, it's still shocking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to know, like, I mean, Al Capone lived in a different world than everyone else did. I mean, mm-hmm. and so like the the what you know, we'll you know, you said we'll get there, but the fact versus fiction, there is like three or four different versions of that exact thing actually happening. Yeah, yeah, and him really doing something like mm-hmm. that. Now, who he did it to and where he did it or you know, it's, it's conflicting it, yeah it's i had that in my notes but, yeah but yeah i mean just but the way they shot it like you know just all of a sudden he's just bashing that guy's head in mm-hmm. um and then when they cut to the camera above the table mm-hmm. and like you see the blood kind of coming out from the head but yeah. then you also see it yeah. splattered all mm-hmm. over the, the super white linen you know yeah you're just like why it's just so shocking and stark and i think intentionally done to like Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. Well, because I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I hate Scarface as much as I do 
is that like the bad guy is the hero of the movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, where you know at no point is, is al capone ever the hero of this movie. No. he's no. always the bad guy right right like you know the good guys are always out to get the bad guy and that just only cements like how bad this guy is mm-hmm. very well said i mean i agree on whole, wholeheartedly because it's visually like i said it's still shocking even watching it again today it's still shocking even though i know what's going to happen but visually it's very stark like you said the contrast of the red on the white just once again well done by the director i mean that was very very well thought out very well planned so then my only other one that i have is malone's death and the whole sequence like that pov almost a one shot outside the apartment coming into the apartment going down the hallway all that was done so well and that's one of those scenes like if if i was flipping channels and the beginning of that scene was on i would have to sit down and watch it i'd have to watch at least that scene because it's so well done um yeah and then when then when you actually get to him after he's been shot like the him getting shot was and once again another shocking and stark scene that i remember like really impacting me when i saw it as a kid like just how ultra violent it was yeah. uh but then when he crawls into the other room i mean that whole sequence and then of course when ness gets there and he's trying to talk like that to me, like you said, the speech that he gives at the at the chapel one in the Oscar. I would say this is the scene that won in the Oscar or the com- combination of the two. But that what are you prepared? You know, the what are you prepared to do that? He, you know, is right. Barely yeah. trying to get out. I mean, that's just I mean. That that may be my favorite scene. It's heartbreaking as it is. Right. It might be my favorite scene of the movie just because of the impact that it has. It also at the same time is one of the scenes that I'm kind of like. Because he got shot by a Tommy gun how many times? <laughs> and he's still and then Elliot right. Ness shows up like I don't know how long later, like yeah, yeah. It, and he's still like he, he's holding out just long enough and, and has enough in his body to give Elliot Ness <laughs> all the information that he needs before he's like, ah So I mean it's a little it's a little on the cheesy side at the same time but you're right i mean it works don't I mean, crap on my favorite scene man don't, I'm come, not, on, I'm, don't come on my show and let, <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm, I, I'm not saying it's not a bad scene i'm just saying like but you're right it's convenient it's very yeah, convenient i mean it's it very does. convenient i had the same thought pulling himself obviously being shot in the back he's paralyzed from the waist down as that scene of the legs that have no kind of movement being you know pulled through the doorway but yeah it's like when when ness shows up i'm like that had to have been like 10, 15 minutes. There was no way he was that close. And then, yeah. And, and of course he dies right after he gives him the information. It's, you know, it's all that those, you know, those tropes right. that we've seen, but it's still impactful. Yeah, absolutely. Watching it this time. I don't know if I ever really noticed it before, but this time during that scene, it, the focus is on Malone and Ness and them trying to talk. But I kept seeing like a hand and it was Andy Garcia's character. Even though he's not in the scene, he's still showing like he cares for Malone. Like you can see him still trying to like hold his hand, you know, while he's dying. And then and then there's a shot when, when after he's passed and LNS is like pounding on the floor. You can see that Andy Garcia's character is broken up about it. So I was like, right. that was really good. Like he doesn't have any lines in that scene at all, but he's still fully in character and doing exactly what he's supposed to do, which I thought was really good. So had to, yeah. had, to had to give him a little bit of praise for that, that part. 
All right, well, let's talk a little bit about scenes and trivia. And, of course, this will might spark some other scenes. And I think we've talked about a good bit of it already. Did you have any other iconic scenes before I jump? No, I don't have any more iconic scenes because I favorite mean, scenes? I got a couple favorite scenes. I okay. got the uh, when they when they break into the mail room and the the one guy. Oh yeah, the post office. Like, yeah, do you got a warrant? He's like, yeah, I got a, I got warrant. a warrant. Just nails him. <laughs> um, that that's a good one. And then yeah. I love the fake out on Capone's accountant. Ness has oh, already shot the guy. Yeah. The guy's already yeah. dead. And then that was and, that was real close to being on my iconic scenes too. Yeah, but yeah. go ahead. And then and then he picks him up and he's like, "You better talk." And then he shoots it. He shoots and already blows the dead guy's head off. Right. And and the guy's like, "Oh, I'll talk." Yeah. Again. And then I love the Canadian guys. Like, I don't approve of your methods. And that's like, well, you're not from Chicago. Yeah. It was... <laughs> yeah. That's all I wrote down. So there were a few lines in this that I had I, I found myself saying with the characters or a little few seconds beforehand because I've seen it so many times. I knew some of the one-liners that were coming. Little history: the Chicago Mafia, also called the Chicago Outfit, was originally founded in the early 20th century by a brothel keeper named Big Jim Colissimo. Later, he brought in his wife's nephew from New York, Johnny Torrio. I'm probably butchering these names, but anyway, to help run his prostitution empire and fend off local black hand extortionists. Torrio also brought along his young lieutenant and Chicago's future king of crime, Al Capone. When Torrio suggested that Calissimo get involved with bootlegging, Calissimo declined and was then murdered, allegedly ordered by Torrio. From 1920 to 1925, the Chicago Outfit was a criminal organization until the attempt on Torrio's life by the rival Northside gang forced him into retirement, leaving Capone to run it solo. To date, the Chicago Outfit has had 15 bosses and have been involved in numerous criminal enterprises ranging from labor racketeering to the skimming of Las Vegas casinos. little history lesson there for you. You're welcome. <laughs> so living where I live now, every small town, even the big towns in this part of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. claims some sort of Capone history. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so while I was watching the movie, yeah, I don't know this first or second time, both times I, I, every time I watch a movie, I tend to get deep into a rabbit hole, especially <laughs> a movie like this, that that mm-hmm. can be good. Um, so I live in a town called Burling. It's, it's the one in Wisconsin, obviously, since I <laughs> keep saying, uh, you know, there's like 80, 80 Burlington's in the U S right. Right. There are some tunnels or were some tunnels over in the, the main part of town, the down, you know, the historical part, the part that's been there for, you know, a hundred plus years that, um, they claim were built by Capone's people. Okay. Um, and that he, you know, he was doing some of his uh, rum running in this town. Lake Geneva, uh, which is like the big rich playground, like all the all the ultra rich of Chicago used to have summer homes in Lake Geneva. Some of them still do. Uh, I mean, there's this massive, massive mansion layout the Wrigley family still owns. Mm-hmm. All sorts of tunnels all through downtown Lake Geneva, again, that claim the same thing. I don't know how much of it's true, um, (laughs) because I can't believe that Al Capone spent as much time as everybody says he does up here (laughs) in Wisconsin and still was successfully running all of what what he was doing in Chicago. Right. Uh, So I don't know how much of it was him and how much of it was just his people. I do know that Capone uh, had hideouts up here. In, in the Wisconsin area. I can't tell you. There is a restaurant that uh, claims it was that I think they call themselves the stakeout or the hideout. Or 
and like there for a long time i don't know if they still do like to get in you had to have uh the secret code okay and and so but in that their big claim was that like they it was started as like an alcaphone like, like a you know speakeasy hot, like a speakeasy kind of thing gotcha. and i mean and their secret code was just like go on facebook for the day or you know, whatever <laughs> you know right call a phone number or something you know it was you know, it wasn't like it was hard to get you know mm -hmm. so not not like they're making it ultra exclusive or anything it was just you know they're shit so but it's really hard to escape the the al capone mythos up here because everywhere you go like somebody's claiming oh over here al capone <laughs> yeah. or or you know i know pretty i think it's pretty boy floyd was murdered or you know shot down by the cops i don't remember it's hard to keep everybody straight up here in wisconsin i know i know given milwaukee's how close milwaukee is to chicago a lot of chicago mafia did come up here because mm -hmm. getting across the state line was enough for them to, you know, go into hiding for a while. Right, right. But, you know, it, it's, it's you know, it's interesting to, to watch it and then know that I'm not that far away from, like, the actual, like, real events. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being close enough to Chicago that I've gone down there a few times, like, you can see some of that stuff is still down there. I mean, they mm -hmm. still kind of like, oh, look at that, you know. It makes me think of because my my wife is from Chicago, so we'll we'll visit Chicago every couple of years, and we don't really get to, usually when we're there we're seeing families. So we don't get to do a lot of touristy stuff. We try we've tried a few times to do some stuff. So I would like to do some of the Capone, you know, tours. Yeah, I've, there. I've never had a chance to do any of the the Capone tours. I did a uh, a ghost tour of Lake Geneva mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. My parents were in town, and so my wife and I took them to. Uh, do a ghost tour of Lake Geneva and part of the ghost tour was like this hotel over here has been here for so long and <laughs> at some point you know Capone and his people and you know they kind of gave us a history of like you know these tunnels over here they claim were this but it's really just old school air conditioning and like the, <laughs> the lady who did that tour was really funny uh, and very informative because she's like listen that tour over there is going to tell you this is all Capone that's crap this one over here <laughs> <laughs> very good cool. Yeah, so I mean, there. I mean, if you want, I mean, if if you know, when you're up here in the area, well, first off, next time you're up in the Chicago area, let me know. It's yeah, very, barely a two hour drive for me to get down. Okay, there. for sure. Um, yeah. but yeah, I've always meant to do the the Chicago crime tour. You know, I just tend to do the museums or you know the Miracle Mile, but mm -hmm. but again, that city is so obsessed with its history, especially its mafia, you know, yeah. organized crime history. It's it's hard to escape it. Mm -hmm. which i know they filmed some of the movie in chicago but it doesn't look like i mean it's it they did such a good job of making it period chicago that it doesn't well, even I mean, look like a, it doesn't look like <laughs> it looks more like a small town in some well, of the yeah. scenes than it does like a, a metropolis that chicago is now well and there are definitely still parts of chicago that look like they did back in the 50s true you know? i mean true. you you get on the l or or you know the the, the subway train and you get they start driving you through some of the, you know, when the train goes through some of the apartment complexes, you know, you're mm -hmm. like, wow, that this, these were clearly built in the 1800s, oh, you know, yeah. early, early yeah. 1900s. So, you know, I mean, Chicago, like New York went up, Chicago just went out. Out, oh, Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> yeah. You know, so some of that, some of that city is still standing. Now, granted, some of it also burned, but. Mm -hmm. Well, moving right along, some other trivia, but good, good stuff. That is funny. I wouldn't think about being Wisconsin that there would be a lot of Capone, but I mean, it makes sense because I'm sure they were 
and you're bootlegging, you're trying, you're, you want to, you don't want to well, be on the main road. So and that, I'm sure and Wisconsin that is going to be. And that bootlegging scene where, you know, they are meeting up with Canada. Mm-hmm. They don't specifically say it, put it that the American side is Wisconsin. Because that's the only, I mean, they're, they're going to have gone straight. Like mm-hmm. they're not going, they're not going over. They're not going, you know, towards Detroit or up. They're just going to go in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Chicago to Chicago to Green Bay and then a little bit further past Green Bay. You're at the border. It, by today's, you know, by today with today's cars, mm-hmm. four, four or five hours, maybe. Yeah. You know? So, you know, that's a day trip for them. You, know, mm-hmm. you get up well, they there. They took a plane, didn't they? Well, yeah, I mean, they took a plane, but I mean, you know, Capone's men could get up there. Oh, right, right, leave, right. Leave in the morning, get up there by the evening, get their liquor, mm-hmm. and then head on down. You know, so it's, right. it's, you know, you could do that all in a day if you really hustled. Yeah. You know, so Makes that sense. part, I don't know where in Wisconsin that scene was supposed to take place because nothing looks like that here. <laughs> but, but I know that technically or theoretically, like that was supposedly, yeah, it's, it's got to have been in the Wisconsin area. We talked about the, uh, the scene in the church earlier, so I thought this was cool. According to director Brian De Palma and producer Art Linson in the DVD documentary, it was Sir Sean Connery's idea to film the blood oath scene between Nessa Malone and the Catholic Church. Originally, it was going to take place on the street in the same scene that follows the church scene. Connery felt that a church would be the only safe place in Chicago where the two characters could make such a commitment to fight Capone. Uh, another part of this, the close-up, the close-up of Malone and Ness in the blood oath scene was shot using a split-focus diopter. Diopter. This is a half-convex glass in front of the actual lens to make one half nearsighted and the other farsighted. The result is foreground and background. Here, both actors are still in focus. The effect can only be achieved when there are nearly no actors nor camera movement, and is often used to create more mystery. Brian De Palma has used this in many of his movies, and I and when I saw that shot in the, in the film, I was like, man, that, you know, I've always wondered how they did that kind of a shot where you've got two characters, one in the foreground, one in the background, they're both in focus. And I know he used it in mission impossible for sure for some scenes. So I, I didn't realize that to doing the research that that's pretty much that's known as one of his trademarks, trademarks. That's the word. Yeah. One of his trademarks. Yeah. So uh, definitely used it well. And that was a good scene to use it in too. We talked about the the other iconic scene was the scene in the train station. So Brian De Palma took the idea of the train station scene from the Russian movie Battleship Potemkin from 1925, which was a silent movie. It includes a classic massacre scene on a set of steps where a carriage rolls down. The sailors who get caught in the crossfire in this movie are a tribute to the sailors of the Potemkin cruiser. The baby in the carriage of the train station was actually the stunt coordinator's son. (laughs) <laughs> which I thought well, was kind of fun so yeah so I remember I remember reading that once before that the whole that that whole sequence was like an homage to an old movie that De Palma and supposedly he's used that same maybe not the exact same scene but he's used that same kind of pacing and kind of building tension in some of his other movies as well so we talked about fact versus fiction so a few things like we said at the beginning, this movie is highly fictionalized of factual characters. And so here are a few things that I'm sure there's more than this, but these few that, that I found that are inaccurate or fictional in the movie. The raid at the Canada-U.S. border never happened. 
and neither did the courthouse or railway station shootouts. So all of the action in this movie never really happened. <laughs> <laughs> the real Frank Nitty did not die in the manner at the time and at the time depicted in the movie. He actually took over Al Capone's empire when Capone was sent to prison. In 1943, Nitty and other Chicago mob members were indicted for extortion. The mob leader blamed Nitty for the indictments and told him to take responsibility for all the charges. Fearing a lengthy prison sentence due to his claustrophobia, Nitty drunkenly wandered to a railroad track five blocks from his house and shot himself. His real-life death was portrayed in Frank Nitty the Enforcer in 1988, which starred Anthony LaPeglia as Nitty. So if you want to see his real story, they did a TV movie about it. Uh, I will say that Nitty's death is probably the other part that I didn't like in the movie. The like cheap special effects of him falling, like looking at him with like the fake yeah. sky behind him. That scene has always bothered me. It's like I just it it wasn't needed. Yeah, I was I wondered if that was more like for me, like you know, I mean, because it, it had been a while since I watched it. I kind of forgot. Mm. Like I was like, man, does this look as bad now? <laughs> because I've did, got yeah. such a nice TV, mm. and, and you know, or did it look this bad in '87? You know? Yeah, and we just didn't know any better. Yeah, I think it bothers me more now. It probably didn't bother me then, but everything else in the movie is so beautifully shot and seems like. Like nothing in this movie is dated until you get to that scene. And then it's just yeah. like cheap special effects that take take just takes you out for a quick second. It's like, uh, I wish they just would have not put that one scene in because everything else is done so well. And the envelope dropped on Ellie Ness's desk in one scene is assumed to be a bribe, but the amount inside is never revealed. In real life, Al Capone promised Elliot Ness that two $1,000 bills would be on his desk every Monday morning if he turned a blind eye to his bootlegging activities, an enormous amount of money then, more than $30,000 today. Ness refused the bribe and in later years struggled with money. He actually died almost broke at the age of 54. I think you brought this up earlier because we talked about they, they wanted to portray Elias as more of a family man. This movie portrays Ness as being happily married and his wife having a daughter and a baby son. In real life, Ness had been married three times. He was married to his first wife, Edna Staley, during the early 30s. And the only child he ever had was an adopted son named Robert. And then one thing, I want to bring this up. The most significant creative liberty of the film is that in real life, Capone and the Chicago outfit actively avoided killing or even physically harming Ness and other treasury agents sent to Chicago. Although Capone frequently tried to bribe them, he decided that violence against them would lead to greater retaliation from the federal government. So... That whole thing about them being in danger was all fiction. So, well, that and like you know, cops protect cops, even dirty yeah. cops. If you start killing, you know, other cops, dirty cops are going to turn on you as well. So <laughs> true, you know, true. like if you've got a group of dirty cops that are are on your payroll, you know, kind of protecting you. If all of a sudden you start killing the good ones, like mm -hmm. they, they might be like, yeah, they're not so inclined to protect you anymore. Yeah. Oh, another scene that I wanted to bring up that it's not necessarily my favorite scene, but a scene that I felt we had to talk about was the fight between Malone and was like the chief of police in the back oh, alley. Yeah. Like nothing's greater than watching two old men beat the crap out of each other <laughs> in the rain in the alley. It was a, it's a, it's a fun scene, but it was like, it was, it's kind of funny watching it now. It's like, man, 
it's yeah. it's an interesting scene, but it's a it's a good scene. It's, you need it for the story, but it made me chuckle a little bit today. Uh, kind of maybe because I I took myself out of the the movie for a minute, but yeah, I, I was when I watched it yesterday. That scene did kind of stand out as kind of funny because you know you've got one old really out of shape, you know, out of you know, you know, chief of police or whatever his mm-hmm. role was, versus a an old like in shape guy. He's a beat cop, so like he's like, right. You know, and I'm supposed to believe the old out of shape guy is like holding his own or, or <laughs> at all, at one point even winning the fight against right. the other. Right, right. Yeah. I guess you need a little action for that, you know, a little action scene to keep the pace going. So, but all right. Any other scenes or any other trivia you, you pulled up that I might have missed? No. I mean, other, I mean, there's just, there's, like you said, the, the, the history is fast and loose in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So talk about the box office and critical reception. Untouchables opened on June 3rd, 1987 and grossed just over $10 million on its opening weekend. It came in second at the box office behind Beverly Hills Cop 2, which had been in the top spot for the third straight week. It did, however, beat out other new releases like Harry and the Hendersons, which came in at number three, number three. And Benji the Hunted, which debuted at number 14. So it did pretty now, well. I, I guarantee you I went and saw Harry and the Hendersons and Benji the Hunted at the theaters. Those... <laughs> right, right. Harry and the Hendersons is one I've seen a million times as well. I haven't watched that one in a long time. Uh, I rewatched it not that long ago. It, does it, does it last... hold up? No, but it's still... <laughs> it's still fun. It's still fun, yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything with... Um, John Lithgow. Lithgow is going to be great. So, uh, so critical reception, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 82% on the tomato meter with an 89% audience score. And I don't think I've ever seen this with IMDb. It's 7.9 out of 10 with viewers and a 79 on Metacritic. The first movie I've seen where it's pretty much the same between audiences and critics. Wait, Metacritic didn't hate it? Yeah. <sighs> Amazing. Yeah. But you know, this was, I mean, it was Academy Award winning movie. It did. It, and it's Brian De Palma. I mean, you know, this, like I said, this is a real movie this time. Right. But uh, but I would put it, I think 80, upper 80s is pretty good for me. I think 85 to 89 is a good range for me on this one. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, even, even kind of picking it apart a little bit like we did, you know, like I'm still, like I'm still in. Like oh, I, yeah. It's know. still, I'm, I'm still going to rewatch it. I mean, it's highly yeah. rewatchable. It's. Like I said, it's still one of it's one of my all time favorite eighties movies for sure. There are a few things that kind of knock it down, like we we've discussed, but overall it's definitely worth watching yeah. and worth uh multiple viewings. So right. So last little bit of trivia for you that I thought this was great. Not you may have seen this already, but I knew you'd appreciate this one. There had been talk that Brian De Palma was going to direct a prequel titled The Untouchables Capone Rising. And who was gonna play young Al Capone in the movie? Nicholas Cage. Ah. <laughs> I'd watch it. <laughs> I knew the pop culture roulette guys oh. would get a kick out of that one. So oh, our our love of Nicholas Cage is legendary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of pop culture roulette, what you guys got going on? What you want to promote? Well, we just came off that Halloween thing, so mm-hmm. we're we're kind of we're kind of taking a victory lap. Uh, we've recently split one of our series off into its own thing. Okay. So uh, we we have we've been doing something. Uh, well, one of the the guys does it more than than I do. Called Freaky Film Club. Oh yeah, where, I've seen those, where yeah. he where he so he's 
he's finally had enough of them and he's he figured out. So he pulled them off of the media pod smash feed and gave them their own feed. Okay. And so we're we're kind of we kind of started our own, like you know, our network was already the the two podcasts. Now I guess it's the third one. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got that going. I mean, we're coming into Thanksgiving, so I'm sure we'll have a a Thanksgiving themed episode, and I'm sure with Christmas coming up, we we can't ignore that. We'll probably right. do a couple do a couple Christmas themed episodes. So. Very cool. Well, if you haven't checked out Pop Culture Roulette, be sure to do that. Give uh, Nicholas and the guys a listen. It's always enjoyable. Uh, not as family friendly as this uh, podcast, just be, be forewarned, but it's not. There's there's other podcasts that I listen to that are much more. Uh, oh, yeah. No, there yeah, are definitely yeah. people. And we don't get. Uh, we use some some naughty words, but we don't really get dirty. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's not not really that bad. Thanks, Nicholas, so much for joining me for this one. It's been a fun one. Thanks for doing Untouchables. This is one of my favorite movies. It's going to drop actually on my birthday, so I wanted to do one of my favorite movies on the birthday. So thanks for being a part. Uh, thanks for letting me be a part of this one. Yeah, man. All right, everybody. Once again, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. If you enjoyed today's episode or any of the episodes you've heard before, share it with somebody who loves 80s flicks or the Untouchables or Kevin Costner or Robert De Niro. Uh, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Look for more. We've got some more Forgotten 80s flicks uh, bonus episodes coming up. And when this drops, Nicholas and I will have done a bonus episode about the new Weird Al movie that just came out on Roku channel. So if you haven't, if you didn't listen to that one, go back and listen to that one that came out earlier this week. And then make sure to check out the other podcasts uh, in our network that we're kind of somewhat forming as a network now, which is Moving Panels podcast with Laramie Wells and interview with a horror virgin with James Brooks. So uh, give those podcasts a listen as well as other, I guess, other podcasts that we advertise on here. Retro Life for You, Manly Movies, Pop Culture Roulette, and Totally Rad Christmas. So, All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Nicholas, for being a part. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flip Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.